Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy. And today I'm continuing my discussions with Larry Swedro, who is head of financial and economic research at Buckingham Wealth Partners. You can learn more about his story in episodes six, four, five. And don't forget to follow him on Twitter or LinkedIn because, my gosh, he's producing so much material. Larry deeply understands the world of academic research about investing, especially risk. And today we're going to talk about two chapters from his book, Investment Mistakes Even Smart Investors Make and How to Avoid Them. And the first one that we're going to talk about is mistake number 20. Do you only consider the operating expense ratio when selecting a mutual fund? And mistake 21, we're going to talk in the second half of this is do you fail to consider the cost of an investment strategy? So Larry, let's talk about mistake 20 about operating costs and all those costs. Take it away. Yeah. So a lot of investors are aware that there is at least some relationship between expense ratios and returns of mutual funds. In fact, John Bogle did a famous study which said you could rank the stocks and mutual funds by expense ratio, and you get a very high correlation with the lowest expenses funds generating the highest returns. So a lot of people at least are aware of that, although sadly too many people even ignore that because they believe that active management is likely to add value despite the reams of evidence on that. And by the way, just on that note, Andrew, I was just writing up a piece today because Morningstar did a new study for the first time they published since 2002, what they call the SPIVA reports, which is the passive versus active studies. And they show persistently that active managers lose in the longer the period, the greater the underperformance and the worse the persistence. So roughly speaking, you know, in every asset class in equities, about 92 to 94 percent of active managers underperform over 20-year periods. But all of that data ignored taxes, which for taxable investors, the research shows, is can be the greatest expense. So for the first time, they published that data, and the numbers now jump dramatically from like an average of 92% or 3% on, to like 97, 98 in virtually every asset class. They and you think that's at. because the market's become more efficient or... Some no, it's practice. because the gross return on the performance is still 92, 93. And if you're an endowment or in an IRA, that means that maybe 6% of the, <clears throat> of the active funds outperform before accounting for risk, but just to get against a, uh, an index benchmark. Mm. However, taxable investors have to pay taxes on the distributions every year. And active funds, because of the higher turnover, have higher distributions in general, which leads to lower returns, and more of their gains are likely to be short-term versus long-term, and they have higher tax rates. So about 5% extra percentage of funds and an extra 50 to 100 basis points in lost returns came, which meant the odds of your picking you know, a mutual fund that was going to outperform after taxes, you know, just by throwing dots would be down to like 2%. I mean, that's just not a game you want to play. Incredible. And when I read this chapter, it's like 
let's imagine that the average return is 10%, you know, of a passive or an index. By the time I finished this chapter, I felt like, okay, so the average person gets about 2% out of that. <laughs> no, not, not quite that bad, but the problem is expense ratios are not the only expense. So even index funds have trading costs. And even index funds, because in my opinion, they're poorly designed, enabling, at least most of them, are poorly designed, enabling hedge funds and other high-frequency traders to trade ahead of them, knowing when they're going to rebalance and they're forced to trade. So they have, you know, because of their turnover, when they rebalance their portfolios on an annual basis, they have trading costs. Mm. And so the funds underperform because of that. Unfortunately, people don't know that because the indices report as if those costs were embedded in the returns already. So you don't see that underperformance, even though it's real. So active funds have much higher expenses. And so that's something. And then they have something called, it's not just the bid offer spread that you incur, Active funds, because they tend to be price takers, not price makers, meaning they want to trade today. Well, you know, if you want to trade 100 shares of a stock, you can probably get it at the offer price. But if you want to trade 5 million shares, the first 100 or 1,000 shares you're going to get at the offer, and then the market's going to start to move. And you're an active fund and you want to get out because you're sure this stock is going to underperform going forward. Well, now you're going to have market impact costs. So you have those two factors. And then you have taxes to add on top of that as well. So Russ Wormers did a study and he found that while the average mutual fund on a gross basis actually outperformed by about 70 basis points, showing the market isn't perfectly efficient, right? There was stock picking skills. However, the fact that the average active fund tended to sit on, say, for argument's sake, 10% cash, and cash is returning 5%, well, that's 50 basis points a year in lost returns, relative to the market's 10% return, you lose 50 basis, you know, on that 10%. So that costs you, right? Then your trading costs cost you another 70, you know, and then you add taxes and now you're down several percent, probably in the order of 2% a year below the benchmark, even though your stock picking skills got you an advantage of say 70 basis points. So I think it's really valuable to go through these costs a little bit more detail. So the first one, mm -hmm. operating costs, another one, trading costs, another one, market impact, another one, taxes, and another one, cost of cash. Now, operating costs is the, is the one that's most transparent, I suppose. That's what they were required to report to the SEC. Okay. And, and that's so what you see when you go to Morningstar. And so that's what you focus on. But the higher the turnover, the higher the trading costs. And the more transparent your index, even for index funds, you're going to have greater. So a good example is the S&P 500 probably loses several basis points or maybe a bit more annually because everyone knows 
what's going to happen when they trade, that you can guess which stocks are going to move in or out pretty easily. Mm. The Russell 2000 was so transparent that the Russell 2000 underperformed a similar benchmark like the Chris 610 by, you know, I forgot the exact number, but it might have been 150 basis points a year. And that's why Vanguard dumped that fund as a changed the benchmark long ago from the Russell 2000 because Gus Souter said was complaining, you know, that, hey, we're losing all this money. And they switched to, I think, a crisp index and then they switched to a, an MSCI index because they were paying lower mm. fees. But that's another expense even of index funds. They pay fees to license their index. When if you can just use an academic definition, you don't pay any of those index licensing expenses. So when we talk about operating costs, is there another name for them that the SEC calls it or that others call it like, I don't know, management fee or something like that? Or is Well, it... that's, that, that's it. That's the management fee of the expense okay. rate. Yep. So, so that's what you get billed for. And then the next thing is trading costs. Now, my question is, I want to understand when a fund announces a NAV, the impact of trading costs is in there naturally. Yeah, it's in there. Okay. Right. And then so here's the problem. So yep. let's say a small cap stock is trading it for argument's sake, 10 bid and 1020 asked. Mm. And you want to buy a hundred shares, you can buy it at 1020. You want to buy a million shares, the first thousand shares maybe you can get at 1020 the next thousand shares you know may cost you 1030 and the market sees there's a buyer and the price keeps going up by the time you're done your average cost might be 1050 and when you're done buying the price is back to 1020 offered and 10 bid and when mm. you go to sell if the price hasn't moved you get 10 for the first thousand shares and then 990 and 980 and then the price goes back to 10. And so there are big costs. That's why today, for example, dimensional fund advisors, which is not an indexer, but is a, what my mind is, uses systematic, replicable, transparent strategies. Almost all the trades are 100 shares using algorithmic trading programs to avoid those market impact costs. And they just trade patiently. But if you're an active fund, you can't do that because mm. you want to get out. So you are a price taker and pay to get liquidity. The dimensionals of the world and AQRs and other patient traders become price offerers or makers, and they get paid to offer liquidity. So mm. you put a thing on the offer side, you're going to get paid the offer by some active manager, you know. Sometimes, and on average, you know, you'll do okay because the market price is the best estimate of the right price. So you have that bid offer spread. Yep. You pay away on a round trip basis, but then you have those market impact costs. And they're, mm. of course, small relatively for large cap stocks like the Magnificent Seven these yep. days, but they're going to be very high for the smaller cap stocks where the active managers say they can add more value. But that's tough because you have that extra hurdle of those market impact costs. So let's just, I'm kind of feeling like trading expenses and market impact are kind of a category. 
together mm -hmm. in the sense that there's an explicit trading expense where you may have to pay a commission or a fee related to every trade. And then there's an, there's a, that's an explicit cost. And then there's implicit that it's the, the bid ask spread that depending on how active you are or how quickly you have to move, that that's going to be a cost related to trading. And then the market impact is also related to your trading, but it's just that you are causing the price to rise or fall depending on if you're buying or selling. And that just means that you're not going to get the average price you thought you were going to get. You maybe get a little bit higher or you're going to sell at a little bit lower. So all of yeah. those is what I would call, you know, related to, let's say, trading. Yeah, absolutely. You have those costs and it depends upon whether you're a provider of liquidity or a taker of liquidity. Yeah. So let's say trading fees are bid-ass spread, explicit expenses, and market impact. Roughly 80 basis points, if my memory serves, with yeah. what Wormitz yeah. found. Yeah. So now we've got, and, and the operating cost management fee expenses, I saw some other statistics previously, but would it be one? Yeah, it's somewhere in, the, it used to be 1%. My guess is it's come down because of the competition mm. from passive funds and there's a race to zero with these passive strategies. Yep. So my guess is it would be more in the 70 basis point range now for the average fund. It might even be less, but so, somewhere in that range. So now let's but talk so, about but the difference is probably not that great, remember, because index fund costs have come down as well. But I think the spread has narrowed a little bit. Yeah. Now, if we look at taxes, let's think about one type of, let's think about a long-term holding. They're not buying or selling, and therefore, they're not selling at a gain and having a tax implication versus mm -hmm. a much more active person could be selling within you know 30 days or six months. And then mm -hmm. all of a sudden, they have, taxes that they as a fund owe from their gains that they've made. And that tax is related, you know, the higher, the better you're doing, number one, and the more actively you're trading, that cost of taxes goes up for the fund. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And in the S&P study I just mentioned, the median, not the average, the mm. median active fund trailed the S&P 500 index over every time horizon they looked at, one, three, five, 10, and 20 years, by up to, get this, three and a half percent a year. So all of the costs, including taxes, that's three and a half percent a year. And at 30 years, the costs were in excess of 2% a year. Uh, um, and 97% of the funds underperformed their benchmark, <laughs> 97%. And of course, the ones that outperformed, outperformed generally by very small amounts, where the underperformance underperformed by large amounts. So your risk-adjusted risk of underperformance wasn't 3%. It might have been, you know, 99%. Ninety-nine or one odds against you. So let's because when you won, you won a little bit. When you lost, you lost a lot. Ugh. 
Now, let's. What would be the estimate of the tax impact nowadays? Let's say we said, let's say operating costs one percent based on the S and P study, one yeah. percent. Okay, so close. So now we've got one percent in operating costs, zero point eight percent in trading costs, and one percent in taxes, and then the cost of cash. Okay, so what what is your current? Well, let's say just a round pick a number. If you think stocks are going to get ten, the average historically, I'm not making a forecast there, but just picking the historical return, and you're sitting on cash earning five, so you lose five percent on say ten percent of your portfolio. That's Mm. fifty basis points. Worma's study. The period he covered found it cost 70 basis points if my memory serves. But let's mm-hmm. call it 50. Okay. Just, you know, so you're talking expense ratio is 70, 1% for taxes, 50 basis points for cost of cash, that's 220. And let's assume you know you do outperform and you're picking and market timing and you're a genius, you outperform by 70 basis points. Well, you're still behind one and a half percent, which is why the hurdle is so high. Mm. You have these people don't understand how high a hurdle it is once you include all the expenses. Now, I will say this, that ETFs have improved the odds because it lowers the cost of taxes and separately managed accounts can also improve them slightly as well because you can harvest losses. So, you know, but for the general public, mutual funds, taxable accounts, that's the data we have. And ETFs, while improving things, don't solve all of the tax issues for investors hmm. either. So let's let's just talk about one last thing about taxes, which you talked about at the beginning was the idea of disbursements or something like that. Or is there another tax that an individual- Yeah, distributions. distributions. I think you mean distributions. Yeah. Yeah. So here's the thing that's the great irony that people don't think about, but happens during bear markets often. So you get a bear market. And what do you think the average retail investor tends to do with his holding? Take money out. Take money out. So unfortunately, they should be buying, right? Because now valuations are lower. And like Warren Buffett said, it don't time the market, but if you can't resist, buy when you know when everyone else is panic selling. But that panic selling causes cash to flow out, and the fund has to then sell shares that were at gains. So in years like 2001, 2, 2008, and 2020, when the, or 22, when the market crashes and you get them having to sell shares, guess what happens to the distributions? They go way up and you've got a loss unrealized, but are paying taxes because you got distributions. The only, you know, that's really is, uh, you know, like sticking a a stick into your heart. (laughs) (laughs) A steak. A steak, that's the word I was looking. A steak into your heart there. Let's just understand that. At the bottom of the market, certain mm. people are getting out. And when yeah. they get out, the fund is forced to have to sell. Yeah. And then they get their cash out. Yeah. Are the people that are still holding that funds p- 
paying a cost in relation to that or is it? Yeah, because they get the distribution if they're a taxable investor. They don't care if they're non-taxable. But that's a real problem for a lot of funds when they get cash outflows. So they're having to realize a gain or loss. The fund has to realize the gain. Right. Right. Yep. And then therefore the IRS forces them to report that and distribute it. And the investor gets a 1099 and then now it's taxable income. And unless they sell their shares, they've got to gain and pay income taxes. And depending upon where they bought their shares, they might not be able to get a loss on their purchases. You know, if they bought it long ago, you know, they can't still sell. Maybe they held it 20 years already and the price they bought it, I'll make this up, was 20 and now it's 80, but it drops down to 40. They still have a gain, so they don't want to sell, mm. but yet they're getting distributions and having to pay taxes. And there's one other factor that we didn't even talk about, and that is the timing impact with people having bad timing. So we're already talking about costs ranging somewhere between two and three and a half percent. And then you have this bad timing, as you said, when people sell during the bad market. Yeah. And I've seen some numbers on that, which is terrifying. But when you add yeah. it all up, like I say, you start to wonder, like the advice I gave my nieces was buy the you know Vanguard fund that has every stock in the world yeah, and total never stock sell. market index. And never sell. And never sell. That's Actually, I would tell, unless she's 100% equities, make sure she rebalances at the end of every year or whenever she has new cash, buy whatever the underperformer was. Well, that's yeah, that's, I, that's what, called what, minding the gap. Yeah. The gap, most of the studies show that investors underperform the very funds they invest in by somewhere between 1% and 2%. Mm, mm. Now, that seems hard to do. You couldn't do it if you tried. You literally tried, you wouldn't be able to do it. But because people tend to sell after periods of poor performance when expected returns are higher, that's how they end up losing. Peter mm -hmm. Lynch did an interesting study on that near the end of his career, he had a bad year. And then the next year he rebounded. And he found that the while his fund provided decent returns during that period that he looked at, the average investor actually lost money because they pulled money out after the bad returns and then weren't there for the good returns. They actually lost money when he did pretty well as a fund. Mm. It's, it's really sad. And unfortunately, social media exacerbates the problem. So the best thing to people to do is ignore Robinhood, ignore Reddit, you know, don't watch CNBC, never listen to Jim Cramer <laughs> and just be a patient investor. Follow Warren Buffett's advice, as I laid it out in my book, mm. Think, Act and Invest Like Buffett. And one last thing is if you're looking at a, a company's, you know, offerings, you'll see that they have funds and they have ETFs nowadays, like Vanguard, as an example, for the absolute amateur that's just thinking, I've just got to build some exposure to the overall market and contribute over many, many years. Is it better for them to buy it as a fund or as an ETF these days? So for in general, the rule would be if you're in a taxable account, buy the ETF because it's more tax efficient. If you're in a 
tax advantage account by the mutual fund because you don't pay a bid offer spread and you don't care about the tax efficiency of the fund. So that's a general rule. Mm. Also, I would note if you're going to buy with an ETF, don't trade first thing in the morning or last thing at the end of the day. You can get really screwed by price movements. But Mm. for the average investor, just middle of the day, put in your order and execute it and you'll be fine. Well, that's a pretty amazing discussion. And I think for it's enlightening for everybody to just think about the seriousness of the cost. Let's go into mistake number 21, which is, do you fail to consider the cost of an investment strategy? Well, this is obviously related to our whole discussion. So I think we could make it pretty short. So for example, when you see returns of a strategy, they often don't include costs. They look at, okay, the strategy is you buy these stocks and they take the closing prices on the day and you buy it and then you sell at the closing price later. But of course, that ignores all of the bid offer spreads, market impact costs, etc. And that ignores taxes as well. So that's a real problem. But I really, the best example I could think of, you know, off the top of my head on this relates to value line strategy. So value line when I was growing up, my dad was a real stock junkie and he watched Louis Rukeyser every Friday night and he you know, would watch Value Line and listen to them. And they were famous for their every Friday night, they'd mail out their recommendations, right? And they would say, here's our returns. And they would base it on the closing price on Friday. Now, let me ask you this, Andrew. On Monday morning, can you buy at the closing price on Friday? And what do you think happened when Value Line mailed out these recommendations to people who got it over the weekend? What do you think happened to the bid price on the, the first price. thing Monday morning? It went way up. So, you know, it was phony reporting. You couldn't buy at it. And once you accounted for that, all of the outperformance of Value Line disappeared, but they bragged about their outperformance. It wasn't there. It wasn't Mm. real. It was a paper outperformance. So that's a good example of that situation. Mm. And You, uh, You ignore the trading costs. You ignore the bid offer spread. You ignore any commissions and everything. That's pretty typical. And all good academic papers today anyway probably for the last 20 years, at least make an attempt to incorporate estimates of trading costs in their studies to make sure they're looking at what the real live data would look at. They at least make an effort to include trading costs. And so when I think about these two chapters and I bring it together, what I'm thinking about is there is this operating cost that you see Mm -hmm. And then there's all these additional costs, depending on how active, the more active the fund is, chances are the higher those costs are. But those are all wrapped up in the NAV and the performance of the fund. Except for the taxes. Except for the taxes, where you as an individual, if let's just say you own something that you never sold, you just left it for 30 years, you're not going to have any taxable event 
No, no, no. That's you're going to okay. still have taxable events in the form of dividends. Number one, which we didn't even you know discuss, mm. but also the fund. Even though you don't trade, the fund is trading and making distributions. So they're going to give you a 1099 and report income that you have to report, whether you sold or not. And how often are those distributions? 1099s coming from a typical fund? Well, they come every, they're required every year. So you can report for income tax purposes. And so in other words, what's happening is that the fund is required to pass through. That's the right words. Yes. Okay. And And they can't pass through losses. However, (laughs) they can only pass through gains. Heads I win. Uh, and uh, tails the IRS wins. <laughs> exactly. And uh, okay, so that that's helpful. Now, does the, the... Let me add, there's one other thing we should discuss mm. here, which is yep. really important to understand, because a lot of people think, and hopefully if they've listened to uh, our prior you know, discussions, they've been disabused of that belief, but they think that past performance of active funds is a predictor of future, which means and results in the fact that successful funds see their AUM or assets grow. But all of the research shows there are diseconomies of scale in active management because the bigger the funds get, guess what happens to their market impact costs? It's higher. Go higher. Or if they try to avoid that, how could they do that, Andrew? What do you think they could do to minimize the market impact costs? Well, they, they could, could diversify. They could diversify across more stocks so they don't have the big impact on, say, 30 stocks. Maybe they own a thousand stocks now. If they're well, then goes your active performance because you're now a closet index fund with big expenses. So you can't win that game. That's a real problem. That's another reason why active management doesn't persist successfully, because successful active management, the way I like to explain it, sows the seeds of its own destruction. In other words, size does matter. Size matters, and it matters even more in the bond market, because the corporate bond market is much less liquid than the equity market. And it matters much more in small stocks, where active managers claim they can outperform, although there's no evidence that that that's true. So if you find an active manager in small caps that had outperformed, now cash flows in, they've really got problems in trading costs. Here's a little interesting story on this subject Mm. that I just discovered today in writing up this paper about S&P and the after-tax performance. So I keep a list of my favorite quotes. I've been doing that for 25 years and use them in my articles. And there was a fellow who ran a, a fund, Aronson, Ted Aronson was his name. He ran Aronson Partners. It was a very successful fund in the 80s, 90s. And he was highly acclaimed, big endowments investor, built it up. And by 2018, the fund had grown from very little to $23 billion. Now he stated, let's see if I can get you the quote here directly. And then I'm going to tell you what surprised me. Yep. All right. He said this, none of my clients are taxable because once you introduce taxes 
And remember, this is an active manager admitting this, rare. Active management probably has an insurmountable hurdle. We have been asked to run taxable money in decline. The cost of active strategies are high enough without paying Uncle Sam. Capital gains taxes, when combined with transaction costs and fees, make indexing profoundly advantaged. So here's the interesting note. In 2018, as I mentioned, the fund had 23 billion. In 2020, the fund closed because of a massive outflow because the fund had performed extremely poorly over the last few years and he shut the fund down. This was a $23 billion fund. And the guy said, I've got to give you the money back. Past performance is not a predictor of future performance. Amazing. Well, that was a great, great discussion and a lot of great information. I want to thank you for that and really helping us to think about how we're creating, growing, and protecting our wealth. And for listeners out there who want to keep up with all that Larry is doing, I'm telling you, you can't keep up with Larry. Just go to Twitter at Larry Swedro or to LinkedIn, type in his name, And you'll get there and you'll see that Larry is just cranking out all kinds of great stuff. So thanks for joining us, Larry. And this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott saying, I'll see you on the upside.